The following podcast contains explicit language. When I was convicted, I said, I'll never give up and I'm never going to let him win. You have my body, but you don't have my mind. In 1987, Rick Wershey was sentenced to life in prison without parole. He was 18 years old. For the next four years, he did his best to settle into his new life. Do you have a best part of the day and the worst part of the day in jail? The worst part's when you wake up, the best part's when you go to sleep because you've done another day. From WDIV and Grand Media, this is Shattered, the White Boy Rick Story. Chapter 5, Operation Backbone. Not long before his 21st birthday, Rick was paid a visit by one of his old FBI handlers, Herm Groman. Groman was accompanied by a fellow agent Rick had not met before, a guy named Mike Castro. By this point, Groman had moved from the drug squad to the public corruption squad. It was now his job to go after crooked cops, politicians, and city workers. Uh, law enforcement doesn't need corrupt police officers or corrupt FBI agents or corrupt anybody. I felt that part of my duty as uh, an FBI agent was to address these things, so I went after him. Immediately, he thought of Rick, his old informant, who just happened to be the one-time boyfriend of Mayor Coleman Young's niece. Roman figured Rick could be a wealth of information once again. And uh, at that point, it occurred to me that we had an opportunity if we could solicit his cooperation in a police corruption investigation. So he and Mike Castro... They flew up to Marquette in northern Michigan. That's where Rick was in prison. When when you guys talked about this, did what? I mean, did you think I want to get even with these fuckers, or uh, uh, I'll help you out because maybe it'll help my situation, or a little of both? I think it was more of you guys fucked me. I'm gonna fuck you back. You're corrupt cops, and I'm gonna take you down. After Rick was convicted in 1987 he felt betrayed by Detroit cops and the FBI. Neither agency testified on his behalf during his trial. But it was members of the Detroit Police Department who actually busted Rick, not the FBI. So now, here he was, four years later, in the odd position of working with the FBI to help bust Detroit cops. But before he agreed to work with Groman again, Rick called his attorney, Ralph Maselli, for advice. And he said, Mr. Maselli, you've always been honest with me and my family. I'm going to ask you a question. And he said, he gave me the circumstances. He said, should I cooperate with them? Should I help them? And I said, Rick, get it in writing. Find out exactly what they're promising you or don't talk to them. And he said, thanks. Well, apparently they talked him into helping them. And they didn't put it in writing. The agreement that I had with uh, Worshi was that, uh, hey, look, you've been convicted under the state charge and received this life sentence, and there's no chance of parole with this. But if Rick did help the FBI, there were perks to be had. A cozy federal prison, and if that mandatory life sentence requirement is ever repealed. I'll come back and testify on your behalf. And uh, so that was the agreement we had. When Groman was still working in the FBI narcotics unit back in the 80s, He says he knew members of the Curry organization had made phone calls to certain Detroit police officers at their homes. 
To him, this was a pretty bold indicator that there was something dirty going on in Detroit. An official FBI investigation was opened. They decided to call it Operation Backbone. The reason? It would take agents with a lot of backbone to take down corrupt Detroit police officers. But to figure out who the dirty cops were, Roman and his partner, Mike Castro, needed someone who had close ties to the cops. Enter Rick Wershey Jr. Remember, before he went to prison, he dated Kathy Volson Curry. She was the ex-wife of drug boss Johnny Curry and the niece of Mayor Coleman Young. And even though Rick was in prison in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, he and Kathy were still in touch. She had been visiting me in Marquette for a few times because she was living up there for something. In fact, as we learn later on, she was in a drug rehab program. Rick suspected Kathy would be willing to use her connections if there was money to be made. So he and the FBI agents came up with a plan. Convince Kathy that an old friend of Rick's from Miami had a lot of dope he wants shipped to Detroit, and he wants to make sure it gets there safely. But first, the FBI needed an undercover agent to play the part of Rick's drug-dealing friend. Here's FBI agent Mike Castro. A lot of these guys we interviewed, potential undercover agents, just didn't fit for what we wanted, and we got really frustrated, so I said, well, we're under a deadline to get something going because the Department of Justice when you investigate public officials, they have deadlines. If you don't have something done by a certain amount of time, you got to close the case. So short on time, Castro decided to go undercover himself. He became Mike Diaz, a Caribbean drug dealer and money launderer. Herman and I took a 35-millimeter camera, had a stepladder, and I cut and pasted my driver's license and put the, the alias on there and took photos of it and took it to a 24-hour film developing place, and then we had it laminated, and that was my undercover driver's license. Soon, Diaz was face-to-face with Rick. So I used that ID to go into prison as a visitor, the same prison that I went to in Marquette, to visit Rick Worshi as an overt agent, identifying myself as an FBI agent. Now I'm there to visit him as a drug dealer undercover, and the prison officials didn't recognize or remember me and they, they found me so believable as a drug dealer, they called the FBI office in Detroit saying, hey, some big drug dealer just visited work worker. So we thought that was pretty good, that maybe I was believable. And when I met with Rick that morning, when I was posing as a drug dealer, he started laughing. He goes, you don't, you don't look like a drug dealer. And I said to Rick, well, you're in the city of Detroit. Drug dealers who are into international drug smuggling don't look like drug dealers in Detroit. They don't talk like them, they don't act like them. And I'm gonna convince Kathy that even though I don't act and and look like you, that I'm the real deal. Rick set the plan in motion when he called Kathy Volson from prison and vouched that Diaz was his drug contact from Florida. Rick set up a time and a place for Kathy to meet said dealer. But just to be sure Volson would buy his story, Castro brought someone to pose as his girlfriend, Rick's sister, Dawn. Well, I mean, we had to act. I had to act like, you know, I knew him. And I... Rick's sister, Dawn, and Kathy were super close when Rick was dating Kathy. In fact, they all lived together in a condo downtown. So the thought was, if you can get Rick and Dawn to convince Kathy that Diaz is legit, Kathy would take it from there. You know, I did, I did what I could to help my brother. I always... 
I've always had his back. Were you worried about Dawn's safety at that point? Yeah, I was worried about her safety, but she was also, Dawn was bitter at them because she knew that they screwed me over as well. So Mike Castro, playing the part of Mike Diaz with Dawn Worshi on his arm, goes to meet Kathy Curry at the Whitney, one of Detroit's finest restaurants. So we met her there and had dinner. Castro laid it all out, uh, said that uh, he and Rick had a uh, longstanding relationship and that uh, he was a Caribbean uh, money launderer and, and drug dealer, and he was very grateful that uh, Rick never gave him up. Uh, we were all friendly. I mean, I, I thought everything went well. She was at ease. I mean, I don't think she had a care in the world thinking anything other than what we told her. Dawn was a natural. Mike Castro knew how important her performance was. My ass was on the line. If she revealed who I was, I would have been killed. And she didn't. You know, she was loyal to Rick. Rick vouched for me and she vouched for me. Once Kathy Volson was comfortable, she came right out with it. How the cops were protecting her, her family, and other drug dealers, and how she was getting inside information, and her uncle was the mayor of Detroit, the Honorable Coleman Young, and she was very powerful, and she could help any drug dealer as needed. And she said, I'll introduce you to one of these cops on the drug dealer's payroll. She was so greedy and so desperate. No one ever forced her to, to say, hey, I got these cops that'll shut down an airport to fly in loads of cocaine. Not only did Kathy offer up her police contacts, she offered up her dad, Willie Volson, as the guy who could make it all happen. She said, hey, you know, my dad can arrange to have flights of cocaine flown in. Working alongside the mayor's brother-in-law, Willie Volson, was police officer Jimmy Harris. Harris was one of the mayor's top bodyguards. To get the ball rolling, the FBI flew them down to Miami. We gave him a ride around the bureau boat and intercoastal waterway, bar hopping. And every time we landed our, with our yacht at one of these bars on the intercoastal waterway, I'd had a stack of $100 bills and I'd given money to the freaking Mater D, to the freaking food servers. I'm handing $100 bills out like it was a dollar. So they treated us like kings, and that really gave us credibility. Uh, yeah, yeah, they were uh, genuinely impressed. Uh, first of all, it was January in Detroit, so it was good to get to Miami and get some sunshine. Uh, they were uh, eager to get involved in this uh, illicit business. So ready to talk a little business? Yeah, yes, sir. Okay. Basically, uh, you know our routine. Uh, I'm watching a videotape of the FBI sting operation. We see Mayor Coleman Young's brother-in-law, Willie Volson, and Mayor Young's executive security officer, Sergeant Jimmy Harris. They're sitting on a plush couch inside a cabin on the yacht. Jimmy is tall and muscular. He's wearing a gold chain and has a cocktail in his hand. I've got no problem whatever you want. See, I'll do whatever you want to do. Willie is laying back in the couch. He's older, a little heavier set. And if anybody ever approach him, please he can pass the word on to you. There are a couple of FBI agents' voices you are hearing here. One of them is Mike Castro as Mike Diaz. He's dressed in a short sleeve shirt. He looks sharp, put together. With this war in the Mideast, I mean, friggin' airports are a problem, though. He is definitely leading the meeting, in which he makes it crystal clear he needs Detroit cops to run security 
on three separate 100 kilo shipments of cocaine. Only us and you will know it's drugs. No one else is going to know anything. Okay. And we're going to come in there, escort us away from the airport, out in the highway, and sayonara. It's hard to believe how comfortable Volson and Sergeant Harris are discussing protecting drug shipments worth more than two million dollars on the street. Oh shit! That ain't no problem. You know, you know what I'm saying? Let me tell you. I'm thinking about when the plane lands and before we got the eggs on the top. Yeah, that's no, problem. No, no, no. Oh, okay. You lost. Uh, you know what? Okay. No, we will go to a, yeah, an isolated area of the airport or whatever. This is going to look legitimate. Sergeant Harris assures everyone he has additional dirty cops ready and waiting and that they can and will get the job done. Well, this is a major friggin' shipment. Okay, well, no problem, but I can, uh, I can have at least four. Okay. But first, Harrison Volson want to know, how much will they get paid? Uh, 40, 50 grand, something like that. The deal is set. So we got a deal? Yeah. The men shake hands. Harder than crime, brother. So we had the quick pro quo on tape and on video. And when the prosecutors listened to my recordings, they loved it. They wanted to take bribes. They wanted to be corrupt. They used their power in the wrong way. They, they, the, the bottom line is they took an oath and they abused the oath. And a lot of them abused it and got away with it. Well, you know, it's not just the money, but it's power also. It gives them control and authority over their city. Like they're, they're the prince of the city. Uh, we had an undercover FBI aircraft that uh, was piloted by uh, FBI agents. Um, we uh, made up some uh, what we called sham cocaine. Uh, basically, it was uh, kilos of flour, had them securely wrapped. And uh, we put a uh, one kilo of real cocaine in the, in the load of the 100 kilos in case, you know, some juror didn't uh, buy the story while well, they weren't actually transporting cocaine, they were transporting flour. Airplane landed, and then the crooked Detroit cops and some drug dealers that were working for them helped offload the bags of drugs and put them into an undercover FBI car. And then that, those cars left the area and the city of Detroit escorted by Detroit police officers. And once they were out of the city of Detroit, they broke off. Jimmy Harris came to me, and I would pay him, and then he dispersed the money to the other officers. The FBI wasn't worried about entrapment. They weren't worried about luring in innocent cops. They were just trying to catch as many dirty cops as they could. And a bunch took the bait. After running through this operation a couple times, Groman says they paid Harris, Volson, and the dirty cops as much as $210,000 in bribes. And they had it all on tape. A plan was devised to take Officer Jimmy Harris down at a hotel room outside of Detroit. We had a uh, microwave uh, video unit placed inside the room where the arrest was going to take place so we could observe the activity that was taking place and monitor the conversation. Nearby, we had a Detroit FBI SWAT team uh, standing by. And so what we did is when Harris showed up to get payment, payment was made, uh, which was all videotaped. And uh, Castro and he were going to have a celebratory drink. Castro said, you know what? We're out of ice. Let me go get some and he left the room. A minute later, there was a knock at Harris's hotel room door. Uh, Harris 
assume that it was Castro coming back, but in fact it was the SWAT team. And when he opened the door, they just rushed him, overwhelmed him. And so he couldn't resist. He's a big guy. He was a tough guy, very experienced guy. So um, he was taken into custody at that point, and then uh, we uh, kind of sneaked him into the FBI office in uh, downtown Detroit. They took Harris there to see if he would cooperate by helping them catch more corrupt public officials. Harris flat out refused the offer, and the story went public. I knew we could pull it off. There was no doubt in my mind. I knew how greedy they were. All day, Detroit area police officers charged in an FBI corruption probe faced arraignment in federal court and then ducked news cameras as they left. Sergeant Jimmy Harris of the 10th Precinct, the feds say he was the organizer of a group of officers protecting what they thought was a major cocaine ring. Most of the officers were released on personal bond, refusing to comment, but the attorney for Sergeant Harris says his client was set up by the feds. Regardless of how many times they say it, they have in fact done the crime themselves and gotten everybody else dirty by doing it. I was able to get Jimmy Harris on the phone. He's not feeling well. He's blind. His friends say he's near death. He absolutely did not want to comment. Political consultant Adolph Mongo worked for Coleman Young. I'm going to tell you, I respect the cops. I had people in my family that's been cops. But you got you got a lot of dirty cops. And a lot of these cops don't want to admit. They plant guns on folks. They shoot unarmed people and, and plant a gun. Yes. So, yeah, they plant drugs on folks. They take the dope money from uh, a lot of these drug dealers. Yeah, I'm not surprised. A lot of money. So tell me what impact dirty cops have on the city of Detroit. If you have cops out there that are protecting drug shipments, what's that do to a community? Kills it. Retired FBI agent Mike Castro. Takes away the trust of the community, and they don't go to the police. They solve, you know, they become vigilantes. Why would you trust the cops? If they, everyone knows it, and I love the city of Detroit. It was just despicable that these guys were doing this and getting away with it, and no one's enforcing the law on them. And that's was Herm and I were on a mission. And Herm and I are both former police officers in cities, and we just couldn't tolerate it. The feds, they had one person to thank for it all, Rick Wershey. So how important was Rick to this operation? If he didn't vouch for me, it would never happened. And also... If he revealed to anybody who I was, I'd have been terminated, and he didn't do that. Terminated to this federal agent means he would have been killed. Castro's boss at the time, John Anthony, agrees. No, it was huge. It was huge. We were thought that that would go to help Rick in his uh, situation. It did not. Attorney Ralph Maselli says, All they did for Rick was put him in the witness protection program. And all that is, is you're in a different prison. He was in a federal prison instead of a state prison. That's all. They didn't shorten the sentence. Rick's cooperation ended up getting Willie Volson arrested and sent to prison, Kathy Volson arrested, and Coleman Young's bodyguard uh, arrested and sent to prison. How, how do you think the mayor felt about that? He was a snitch. <laughs> they called him a snitch. You know, and the mayor hated snitches. 
Adolf Mongo used to work for Mayor Coleman Young. Yeah, so he went on uh, TV and in the newspapers and, and said, uh, Rick Worshi's nothing but a stool pigeon. What kind of message do you think that sent out? Uh, white boy Rick was a stool pigeon. But then looking back at that, man, the boy was only 16 years old. But in a, in a drug war, he might as well have been 30 years old because he was uh, collateral damage. And they they threw him right out in the middle of it, left him hanging. You know, he cooperated with the cops. You'd think they would looked out for him. You'd think the feds would have looked out for him. You're saying he was punished because he helped put cops away. Absolutely, no question about it. Former FBI agent Herm Groman. Ordinarily, uh, anybody who is caught in simple possession with no prior uh, at 17 years of age would go to prison for a few years and be out. But uh, that didn't happen to him. And he's paying the price for his cooperation. And ultimately, naively, really on my part, his involvement in Operation Backbone, I think sealed his fate for the last uh, 30 years. Uh, I really believed at the time that if the operation was successful and we arrested all these corrupt police officers, Worshi would somehow be rewarded by the state. And that's what I push, push for. But uh, ultimately, he truly is a prisoner of war, the drug war. Can you put a name and face to it? Uh, yeah, Gil Hill. All, all roads lead back to him. Coming up next. The word went out from Gil Hill. The word went to the police department. The word went to the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office. You make sure he stays in jail forever, forever. And they did, they did. Today's episode was produced by Zach Rosen and me. It was edited and mixed by Zach Rosen. Tad Davis is our assistant producer. WDIV's executive producer of special projects is Ro Coppola. WDIV's news director is Kim Voet. My name is Kevin Dietz. Jerry Lemonu created original illustrations for each episode of this season. See them at whiteboyrick.show. If you like the podcast, consider writing a review for us in the Apple Podcast Store. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Shattered Podcast. Don't forget season one of Shattered, all about the missing skeleton boys. It's available in this very feed. Thank you for listening 